All right, well, we are going to get into our study of uh, Revelation this morning, and uh, we heard a wonderful exposition already from Pastor John in Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look a, a little bit earlier in the book to Revelation chapter 1 and finish the chapter this morning and finish what is the first vision that we have recorded for us in this book, Revelation chapter 1, and the vision begins in verse 9. The first eight verses of this book are all the introductory matters, and then beginning in verse 9 and through to the end of verse 20 of chapter 1, we have this vision that John receives, a vision of Christ, and this vision takes place on the island of Patmos. We will have recorded for us other visions throughout the book, and those visions will take place in other areas. But here John is on Patmos, and it is there that he sees the glorious Christ. We already looked at the first portion of this vision several weeks ago. We looked at the first half of it, really, or two-thirds of it in a way, from verses 9 to 16, and even a little bit into verse 17. The, the sum of the, the vision is given for us there, and now we will look at verses 17 to 20, where the vision is essentially restated and reaffirmed. So our text this morning is, is going to focus, uh, or is going to be verses 70 to 20, we're going to focus on this restatement of the vision with further clarity given by what Jesus says in these verses. Let me begin reading from verse 9 all the way down through verse 20. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white, like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, 
and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, our text this morning is going to follow another four points. If you remember from our previous study, we looked at the beholder of the vision, identified in verses 9 to 10, the behest of the vision, identified in verse 11, the bearer of the vision in verses 12 to 16, and the burden in the beginning of verse 17. We're going to change that up to the letter E now, and also look at this in four uh, in, in, in four points for our observations, our study this morning. First of all, we're going to see the effect of the vision in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. We're going to notice, secondly, the encouragement of the vision that's given in verses 17, the second half to verse 18. We'll read that again once we get there. We're going to see the exhortation of the vision in verse 19, and then fourthly, we'll see the explanation of the vision in verse 20. Now, before we go any further, what is very important to notice here, two very important observations. First of all, there is so much Old Testament uh, terminology and concepts that are woven into what John is writing. So, in, in, in fact, even though it's difficult to find exactly where John is quoting specifically, the, the text is just filled with references to the Old Testament. And that's very important to note about, about the, the book of Revelation in general, but specifically about these visions of Christ. And secondly, what is so important to gather, even from this first chapter, and as we will see throughout the rest of the book as well, is that the, the, the book of Revelation represents what we call high Christology. We're going to see it as we look specifically at, at verses 17 and 18 this morning, but all throughout, that John gives us this very developed high Christology. In fact, I'm, I'll say this throughout, but I'll say it now already, that you cannot read the book of Revelation and how it describes Christ and walk away thinking that he is anything else than divine. We will see that by the kinds of titles and descriptions that the the Lord Jesus uses for himself as he encourages John in this text. But speaking of the Old Testament uh, concept or the theology of the Old Testament brought in to Revelation, what is very important to note here, specifically with verses 17 to 20, is a very important parallel text in the book of Daniel. Turn to Daniel for just a moment, Daniel chapter 10, because we see the same kind of terms and pictures used by John here as he records this vision. And it's important for us to note that because we can see that as John writes this and brings in so much of the book of Daniel, chapter 10, into his descriptions, we see that John is, is fully cognizant of the fact that he stands in the line of the great prophets. In fact, we'll, we'll see that throughout this section. Daniel, or, or John, recognizes that what is happening to him happened to Moses. What has happened to him happened to Isaiah. What is happening to to John happened to Ezekiel. And what is happening to John happened to Daniel. And so as he describes this, uh, John will bring in all of that that line of 
a prophetic experience of the glory of God and, and weave it into the text that he describes. But in Daniel chapter 10, we have specific language that ties, uh, t- ties these two texts together. Now, in Daniel chapter 10, we have recorded for us another vision, a time when Daniel is terrified by what he sees. He is, he is mourning, he is fasting, and he lifts up his eyes, verse 5, one day, and behold, there is a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with the belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like the barrel. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of the tumult. He continues, he says, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as, as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Now, what he's going to describe here, the person that he sees, is some would say this, because of the connection specifically to, John, uh, to, to Revelation 1, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't think so, based on what we're going to read now in verses 10 and following. It's probably Gabriel, but... What we see here is a glorious manifestation of, of, of supernatural majesty, but it's, it's angelic. And Daniel is going, or John is going to reach back into this text to use these kinds of terms in Revelation 1. And it's important to note, it's not because there on the island of Patmos, John sees Gabriel. Instead, there's an escalation that takes place. That what happened to Daniel when he sees Gabriel, this majestic angelic creature, is going to be multiplied by the time John is on the island of Patmos and sees the glorious Christ. But it's important to to recognize this connection nonetheless. Verse 10 says, Then behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, Man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless." In Daniel 10, Daniel has this angelic messenger come and bring him an understanding of a vision about the future of Israel. In John chapter 1, a similar theme is at hand. It is 
It is the theme of the future, the future for Israel, future things. And yet there is an escalation that takes place. It is not Gabriel who appears to John. It is the glorious Jesus Christ. Let's see how John develops this. First of all, the effect of the vision. Verse 17a, when I saw him, when I saw him, that one who appeared to John as he was in the Lord's day, On the island of Patmos, a Sunday, the day dedicated to the worship of the resurrected Christ, when I saw him, I fell at his his feet as a dead man. John was overwhelmed by the apprehension of this glorious vision, this glorious Christ. He says, I fell at his feet. Now, in the presence of what he is recognizing as deity, John becomes very acutely aware in that moment of his creaturely status. And as a creature, you recognize that you are made from the dust. And so when you stand before glory, you find your connection not with the glory, but from and with the dirt. John quickly falls to the dirt. And that's so very important for us to catch. In fact, it's repeated, as I have already mentioned, through all these different manifestations of the glory of God throughout the Old and New Testaments. When that glory is manifest, there is no frivolity. There is only the most serious pondering of, of ruin that takes place when that glory is made apparent. This kind of prostration of bowing to the dirt is the only true response to to the unveiling of of God's glory. And we see it as we will over and over again. It's repeated so often. I want to read just a few texts that establish this. Genesis 17.3, Abram, when he recognizes he's talking with the angel of the Lord, a theophany. Genesis 17.3 says, Abram fell on his face and God talked to him. In Joshua, you have the, the captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua 5, verses 14 to 15, we read this. He said, no, as, as, as Joshua interacts with him, he responds, no, rather I indeed Come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. Ezekiel 3.23, Ezekiel describes this. He says, I got up and went out to the plain and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory which I saw by the river Chebar and I fell on my face. Luke 5 verses 8 to 9, when Jesus had had, had, uh, had exercised his power to, 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 to do that miracle with the fish on the Sea of Galilee, you have Peter, Simon Peter, falling down then at Jesus' feet, saying, go away from me, Luke 5, 8-9, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. In the book of Acts, when the glorious Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, we have this recorded by Luke, Acts 9, 3-4, as 
he was traveling, that is Paul, also called Saul, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Over and over again, we see that the more one sees who God is, more clearly, the more it results in prostration before him. Not frivolity, not laughter, not superficiality, but a feeling, a sense of coming undone. In fact, you see this even later on in the book of Revelation. Even the inhabitants, the glorious the glorious angels of heaven, the inhabitants of heaven fall down before the glorious Christ. Revelation chapter 5 verse 8 says, When he had taken the book that is Christ, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 14 of chapter 5. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. We see that John associates himself with the dust, but even more so, you have this added description that he did so as a, a dead man, and the description there indicates that there was so much taking place in that moment, there was so much sensory overload that John was paralyzed. He was paralyzed. And when you read this, you have to ask the question, how different must this have been for John than it was 60 years ago? Remember, 60 years ago, John writes this around 80, 96, and back in 80, 30, 66 years prior to that, John, it said on the, during the Last Supper, John leaned on Jesus' chest. John was one to, to touch Jesus, to hear him. Remember 1 John 1, 1, where John writes what we have heard from the beginning, or what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. And what John is referring to there is that the, 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 the physicality of the incarnate Christ. And in that advent, John was able to lean right up against Jesus. And so often he uses the, the terms that, that, uh, that, that he was the one whom Jesus loved. Those terms of closeness that John uses to describe that. Or you remember in Matthew chapter 20, we, we, we looked at this text back in August, how John and his brother James are jockeying for position with Jesus. They, they kind of treat Jesus in that trivial way by sending their mother so that she can get favors for them that they might sit at the right hand and the left. But that kind of response, that kind of familiarity is not here in Revelation 1. Now John sees supernatural glory. And and when a creature sees this glory as it really is, there will always be a sense of terror and ruin. And why is that? Well, because so often throughout Scripture, and specifically in a few texts in the book of Exodus, we read that man cannot see God and live. 
when Moses asks to see the glory of God, God tells him, no, for your good, that cannot happen. And so in Exodus 33, for example, in verses 19 to 20, we read that God said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no Man can see me and live. Even just before that, there's the account of when Israel had been delivered from bondage in Egypt. And they cross the Red Sea and they assemble at the foot of Mount Sinai where God gives them their constitution, what we call the Mosaic Law. And, and, and before they... They get there, or before that moment happens, Moses is told by Yahweh, make sure the people do not get too close. They will die if they get too close to the mountain. And then after God delivers what we call the ten words, the ten commandments, when the people heard this in verses 18 to 19 of Exodus 20, this is their response. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And that was a good response. They they recognized that man cannot see God and live. And that the more God manifests his glory, even in ways that man can perceive, that that clear perception of manifest glory is terror. It's terror. Again, we see this throughout Scripture. Remember Manoah, when he's given the prophecy that he and his wife will have a child. It's an angel, the angel of the Lord comes to Manoah and tells him that, and it takes a while for Manoah to realize what will happen, but when Manoah talks to his wife later, he says to his wife in Judges 13.22, we will surely die, for we have seen God. Or remember Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when he has the vision of the throne room of God, and after seeing that throne room and the praise that takes place in God's presence, he says this, woe is, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is what John feels. That is what John experienced on the island of Patmos when the glorious Christ appeared to him. It was not just a picture of a lamb. Now it is the vision of glory of the Son of Man in His power and majesty. And it is a vision of Christ that we do very well to meditate upon regularly. It is the picture of Christ that the churches in Asia needed. And it is the vision of Christ that we need But it's not just ended there. Go now to the encouragement of the vision. 
in verses 17 to 18, we read this. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, you might wonder how that's encouraging, but it is. Let's look into it. He places his right hand on John, probably on his shoulder, And probably for someone like John, immediately there was that realization, that remembrance that this is the same one against whose shoulder he himself leaned. The one whose touch he had felt many previous times, six decades previous. You see, the only hope in the face of divine majesty is that that majesty itself will respond with mercy and grace. And that is what happens in this description by the placing of the right hand on John. The right hand is the hand of power, but it is also the hand of blessing. And in that remarkable moment, as John is paralyzed in the dust, Jesus extends his hand, reaches down to him, and that touch gives encouragement and assurance. And talk about a picture of salvific reality. It is not that in any way we ascend. It is not that in any way we stand. In fact, the idea of John remaining to stand would be blasphemous. Instead, it is God, it is Christ himself who in his considerateness and benevolence reaches down touches John, gives him the comfort and assurance that he is not undone. He will go on to live another day. And as I said, the language of verse 17 reflects what Daniel had even experienced with an angel. Now it is with Christ himself. But there's another text that's important to read here, and it's Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, there is the account of that moment when the the incarnation of Christ is revealed in its glory and Christ is manifest to Peter, James, and John. They see Christ for that moment with the humility somewhat peeled away and they see him in his glory, and we read this in verses 5 to 7 of Matthew 17, as Peter, James, and John are there, the only ones to experience this magnificent moment in the life of Christ. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, when Peter, James, and John heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says here. Notice that Jesus not only touches John to give that 
assurance and comfort, but he speaks to him and says, do not be afraid. Literally, the the idea of the grammar here is stop fearing. Cease being afraid. The same exhortation given there in Daniel 10 and Matthew 17 and in many other contexts. Do not be afraid. In fact, another account in the life of Christ, when the humility of of Christ was superseded by that glory and majesty and power for for just a a moment, you you have the account of of Jesus walking on the water. And remember that Jesus had had just fed the 5,000. He just shown his power. And then he sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee late in the evening as he remains to pray. The disciples had just seen that, that manifestation of the power of Jesus, but now they're in the boat. And it, the, the, the Luke describes, or Matthew describes, the, the situation as the winds being contrary and the waves battering against the boat. And, and where's Jesus? Well, Matthew 14, 27 says, when the disciples saw him then walking toward him on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I do not be afraid. Now here is a memory for John that would have undoubtedly come back to his mind in the midst of this. Do not be afraid. Stop fearing. But there's another, there's another phrase in this that is so important that also connects it with what, John, what is going on in Revelation 1. It is the phrase, it is I. Ego a me. I am is how that is translated. And we see that in Chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 17, Jesus speaks to John saying, Stop being afraid. I am. I am. As in Matthew 14, 27, this phrase, I am, brings reassurance to John in that Jesus is going to use this now to, to attach different titles and descriptions to him that are intended to bring John comfort. But we cannot go very far without recognizing the power of that I am statement. And by the way, this is one of John's most important contributions in his gospel. When we look at the gospel of John, this this phrase I am is used dozens and dozens of times but only minimally in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John really understood. He really had a a sensitivity toward and a fascination with the phrase, I am. And you know, we go to John's Gospel for all of those I am statements. And here he brings it in as well. Here Jesus speaks it to him, I am. And that, of course, brings us to that other important manifestation of glory and in, in, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, you have this, and then verse 14, you have this description that, 
that Moses is in the wilderness, he's herding sheep, and he sees a bush that is on fire, but is not being consumed. It is a supernatural fire. And so Moses turns to to investigate, and verse 4 of Exodus 3 says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And then Yahweh said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then a few verses later, when Moses asks for identification, Yahweh says to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what John hears. I am. But here, Jesus will add to it several titles and several descriptions, four of them. And these descriptions, as I said, on the one hand, they they are fearful. But on the other hand, they are comforting. For the one who has been shown mercy... These titles, these descriptions that we will look at, all four of them, are titles and descriptions that bring comfort. In fact, these descriptions, these four descriptions, these four titles are really the essence of our salvation. They are are what makes salvation for us possible. But for the one who does not believe in Jesus, to the one who has rejected that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, these titles are indeed fearful. They they bring terror. They won't comfort you. In fact, as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, we see over and over again that mankind, men on the face of this earth, will, will see the glory of God, and instead of being comforted by that glory, they will seek to flee. They will rebel even more. Now, these titles, as we will see them, are comforting. They they all have something to do with life and salvation. They're comforting to objects of mercy. And John knew he was an object of mercy. What's the first title? Jesus says, I am the first and the last. This title emphasizes Jesus' eternality. His eternality. It emphasizes the Father's description back in verse 8 when the Father called himself the Alpha and Omega. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. I am the Alpha and Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It echoes Yahweh's self-description of himself in Isaiah 41, verse 4, 44, verse 6, and 48, 12 to 13. In those three texts, the language is identical to what Jesus says here in John or in Revelation chapter 1. Isaiah 41 verse 4 for example where Yahweh says who has performed and accomplished it calling forth the generation from the beginning I the Lord am the first and with the last I am he Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. 
and there is no God besides me. Or 48 of Isaiah, chapter 48, verses 12 to 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I have called. I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out all the heavens. And it certainly reminds us of Jesus' assertion in John 8, 58. When the Pharisees and scribes and the religious leadership of Israel are are, are trying to impugn Jesus, and he makes that, that statement that puts Jesus on the same level as Yahweh when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. It emphasizes his eternality that this one who appears to John is different than the one who appeared to Daniel, and that this one is the eternal one. And that eternality is is an important perfection that we must attach to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ, and adore. When it comes to eternality, there's a helpful discussion on this and. In Stephen Charnock's wonderful book, The Existence and Attributes of God, this is what he says about God's eternality. Creatures are in a perpetual flux. Something is acquired or something lost every day. A man is the same in regard of existence when he is a man as he was when he was a child. But there is a new succession of quantities and qualities in him. Every day he acquires something till he comes to his maturity. Every day he loseth something till he comes to his end. A man is not the same at night that he was in the morning. Something is expired and something is added. Every day there is change in his age, a change in his substance, a change in his accidents or his expressions. But God hath his whole being in one and the same point or moment of eternity. He receives nothing as an addition to what he was before. He loseth nothing of what he was before. He is always the same excellency and perfection in the same infiniteness as ever. And that's what Jesus claims and and asserts to John. And it is comforting that this is the same Jesus, the same one who is always the same yesterday, today. And forever. A second designation, a second title that Jesus uses for himself in verse uh, 18 now. He says, I am the living one. I am the living one. And this one emphasizes what we call Jesus's aseity. Aseity means that Jesus or, or God has everything in himself and is dependent on nothing outside of himself. He is, the only, he is the only one, he is the only being who has this quality. The triune God is reliant, dependent on absolutely nothing, but instead gives life and existence to all other things. And Jesus claims this for himself. Now, when he calls himself the living one, what's important to note here is that this particular title is not a reference to his resurrection. That's going to come in the next title. 
This one is a reference to his, what we could call his ever abiding life. His life that is unrestricted as to time. That it is constant. His character, his essence is constant. And why do we say this? Because this particular phrase is a phrase that is used regularly by Yahweh, by the Father, throughout the Old and New Testaments to describe Him. It's not an incarnational term. It's a term of deity. So, for example, Psalm 42, verse 2, David says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, the one who has life. It doesn't mean just that he exists, but that he is the living one indicates that he has life in himself. He is the spring of all other existences. He is the living God. Psalm 84 verse 2, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The the psalmist pours out his yearning his need, and he appeals to the one and the only one who can satisfy that because he is the living God, the one who has life in himself. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, we read how the Thessalonians had turned from their idols, their dead mute idols, to serve the living and true God. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 There Paul explains his reason for writing to Timothy, and he says, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Hebrews 10 verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here Jesus claims that quality for himself. Now, for those who do not know Christ, this would be full of terror and dread. But for one who has been an object of mercy, who has received the grace of God, who has had God stoop down through Jesus Christ to touch him or her, this kind of description is comfort. He is the one who has the life that you need. J.A. Packer, in explaining the importance of aseity, says this about it. He says, in theology, endless mistakes result from supposing that the conditions and boundaries and limits of our own finite existence apply also to God. The doctrine of his aseity stands as a bulwark against such mistakes. In our life of faith, we easily impoverish ourselves by embracing an idea of God that is too limited and small. And again, the doctrine of God's aseity stands as a bulwark to stop this happening. It is vital for spiritual health to believe that God is great. And grasping the truth of his aseity is the first step on the road to doing this. And this is exactly what Jesus emphasizes, his aseity. Third, now we come into Jesus' incarnational descriptions. He says, thirdly, in verse 18, I was dead, 
and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now this description emphasizes Jesus' victory over death. Now Jesus refers to his humanity. Literally, what's interesting is the language here, and, and Jesus describes himself with reference to a historical moment, and he says, I became dead. Now the one who is alive, the one who is the living one, the first and the last, in his deity cannot become dead. But this one, as the God-man, is able to experience death in his humanity. I became dead. And then right in the middle of that reference, a reference, of course, to the death on the cross in payment, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all who would believe In the middle of that description, I was dead or I became dead, you have this statement, and behold. You could even translate it a little bit better as, but behold. There is a a contrast. I died once, he said, but listen to this. I am alive forevermore. And that last half emphasizes permanence. The first half emphasized that historical moment. He became dead. It was an event. But now he is alive forevermore. Speaking of his resurrected, ascended, his glorious existence in in his humanity as one who will never again in any way face death. This reminds us of what Paul said about Jesus' victory over death in 1 Corinthians 15.33, as Paul gives this very important chapter on the doctrine of the resurrection, he, he brings it to a close with these words. He says, For this perishable, speaking of our own bodies, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you hear that statement, I became dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. That is hope. That is comfort to John and to everyone who places their faith in this victorious one. He is victorious over death. And so he is able, as he manifests himself to John, to comfort John, because he's got the power over death. Fourth. He ends with this description, I have the keys of death and Hades. This particular description emphasizes Jesus' authority to judge. And this is going to be a particular emphasis of the rest of the book, even beginning in chapter 2 as Jesus renders judgment on the churches, and then beginning in chapter 6 as he pours out his judgment upon rebellious mankind. You'll see it over and over again. He has that absolute authority to judge. Now, the idea of keys here, very common even to us. Keys represent authority. Keys 
indicate whether someone can pass through, whether there is entry or exit. And Jesus describes himself as having the keys to death. We can think of death as the destiny of the body and Hades, the destiny of the soul, the landing place of the dead. And both of those terms, death and Hades, remind us very much of Genesis chapter 3, where Jesus or where God pronounces the curse upon humanity, particularly upon Adam, and says that you will die. From dust you were taken, and to dust you will return. These two descriptions remind us unmistakably of the curse of sin. But Christ has authority over that curse. He has authority. We see Christ holding the stars Earlier in the the vision, he holds the stars in in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars representing his authority over the churches. But his authority does not stop there. His authority extends to the application of the curse over all humanity. And if you want to be comforted by anyone, if you want the mercy and grace, you want the hope, from anyone, you want it from someone, you want it spoken from someone who has this authority. There is a dramatic exercise of this authority later on in chapter 20, where John records a great white throne, verses 11 to 15, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What John is communicating here is essentially this. You don't want to trust in Christ's work. You don't want to believe that he is sufficient and the only hope for your salvation. Okay, you can go before this Christ and you can be judged according to your deeds. Let's see how that turns out. But for John and for all of us who are objects of mercy, the same one who holds the authority to judge and to throw death and Hades themselves into the lake of fire, the fact that he holds the keys is what counts. And for one like John, he has locked the door of death and Hades. John will not pass there. Speaking of the wrath of God, the wrath of Jesus, A.W. Pink in his book, The Attributes of God, has a helpful summation. He says this, How could he who is the sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, wisdom and folly? How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? 
the very nature of God, the very nature of this glorious Christ makes hell as real a necessity, as imperatively and eternally requisite as heaven is. And that's what we see here in this vision that John records for us. We obviously won't finish this section today, but I I do want to summarize this great declaration of deity. Like I said, you, you cannot read the book of Revelation and walk away from that and say, Jesus is not divine. Jesus claims here in this text and many other places, we've seen it already in, in Revelation and, and it will be emphasized over and over all the way to chapter 22, verse 21. But here you, you see the claims that Jesus makes of eternality, of aseity, of victory over death, and of authority to render ultimate judgment. And that those qualities, those descriptions and titles are very, very unique and apply to only one, and that is the one who is both God and man. No one else can claim this. You see both his deity affirmed as well as his humanity. And what is important to note here is that this one commands John to cease fearing, but not to cease worshiping. Not to to cease worshiping, but to cease fearing. Because these qualities, these four, are the basis for John's salvation. They bring him comfort and assurance, even as he comes face to face with the glorious Christ. But if you do not know Christ, these same things, these same qualities, will undo you. If you do not know Christ, these same qualities, his eternality, his aseity, his victory over death, and his authority to render judgment, these same things will be your destruction. Do not claim these things as your comfort if you do not know Christ. But if you do, like John, you can be comforted and you can continue to worship. And why do I say that John does not cease to worship. What's very important to recognize here, just as we close, is that later on in Revelation, Gabriel will make an appearance, probably Gabriel, an angel, will make an appearance to John. And the angel's words to John are very different than Jesus's. You can look at Revelation 19.10. John there, too, falls at the feet to worship the angel That's what falling at the feet does. It emphasizes that, but the angel said to him, do not do that. That's probably Gabriel. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Or at the very end in Revelation 22, verses 8 to 9, We read this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Fall at his feet and be comforted by his words.
That's the, the challenge to you as we go through this vision. It is not just a, a description of what happened on an island far away that most of us will probably never visit. That's not the point. The point is, what is your response to this glorious one? To his touch. Let's pray. Father, as, as we have described for us in these verses words that describe eternality and aseity, victory and authority. We are reminded of our creaturely status, that not only are we made from the dirt, but because of our sin, our only worthy destiny is to return to that dirt and then to spend our eternal existence in righteous punishment for our sin. But we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for that advent, that first one. When your son came in humility as a servant, not with blazing glory and a sword, but with a towel and a cup, wearing a crown of thorns to take upon himself our own sin, to live the life we could never live and to die the death we could never die. So that in the manifestation of such glory in the future to come, we will not come undone. We will not be exiled to permanent punishment, but will rather worship at the feet in comfort and joy for what your Son has done for us. Father, as we approach this Christmas season, may May these two visions of Christ, his humility and his glory, be very much upon our minds. We thank you for your great condescension to us, you the glorious one. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.